0: You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach.
1: It's Lisa Birnbach. And before I go any further, I want to wish any of you who celebrate the Jewish New Year of Rosh Hashanah a very happy and healthy New Year. Don't forget to vote. Now, you'll never make money betting on New York versus Los Angeles. I learned that and I keep relearning it. Just when I finished defending the obituary writers about writing their essays on New York, the West Coast burns brighter, harder, worse than ever before. It's biblical. Now, I'm still in California at the end of my month-long visit to see my exhibits, And I'm really, I I am happy to be here to get a sense of what their lives are like, to have more than a few days to really have downtime with them as well as hyped up time, to see what their lives are like and to extend our relationships in new ways. And to tell you the truth, I don't even mind driving. I can find my way from our rented house to the baby without a GPS. I consider that a victory. But to get back to the true issues at hand, the West Coast is on fire. Until this president took office, I always had the sense that America did things right, that our brilliant founders had created a document and a democracy that was durable and reliable and planned for every contingency possible in our Constitution. It was my American privilege, and I took that as one does, for granted. Now, by disdaining and flouting science, this president and his team, and don't forget, a lot of the people in high positions are his former bodyguard, his son-in-law, donors who have no training or background, there's a handbag designer involved, are playing the most dangerous game of Russian roulette ever. You burn if you're blue, and if you're red, you go to a super-spreading rally instead. This is a bad dream and I go to sleep with it every night. I wake up with it every morning. I, I pray, really pray that it ends. Conversations on both coasts now include the conversation, where can we go? What do we do? How do we stay here? And you know, the haze and the ash and the particulates from these fires don't just affect people on the West Coast. They've traveled to the East Coast including Palm Beach, Florida. They travel over the Atlantic Ocean to Europe and even Africa. We are all suffering, and the American president is largely to blame. He's hurting the entire planet. What occasionally makes me hopeful are the voices and the protests begun by the young, the young people. They're doers. My admiration for Malala for Greta Thunberg, and for the survivors of the Parkland mass shooting are boundless. My guest this week is a young, active, wonderful, brilliant young woman named Amelia Nirenberg. She's the co-writer of the New York Times Coronavirus Schools Briefing newsletter. After she graduated with a bachelor and master's in four years from Yale in intellectual history, she won a job at the Associated Press West Africa Bureau in Senegal. And she worked there for a while and then won a fellowship in the first class of New York Times Fellows. She worked at the food desk. She is just one of the many young people who give me hope. But before we talk to Amelia, here are my five things. Number one, enjoying the fruits and vegetables from one's own garden. I must say there is something extremely lovely and it makes me feel self-sufficient when I can trot out to the backyard of this rented house and pick a lemon with which to make salad dressing. I mean, yes, I could drive to the store. It's not a big deal, but there's something so just easy. Not just easy, but I grew it. I'm, I planted it. I raised it. And now I'm squeezing it over my fish. Well, I don't have a garden in real life, but it's on my wish list. Whether my next home is a cottage with a garden or a terrace in Manhattan, I, I know that I want to grow fruits and vegetables. Number two, the Citizen App. My stepdaughter told me about it in New York. It's a way to find out what's going on in your vicinity. In Los Angeles, let me tell you, twice yesterday, I was trying to drive somewhere, and where the GPS sent me, I could not go because there were police stakeouts. This is twice in one day. Plus, there are helicopters overhead a lot, so this app tells you what's going on, and it doesn't tell you who they're staking out, but... It's a lot easier to look at the app than ask a policeman in the midst of a sting. Whoa, Mr. Policeman, who are you looking for? Number three, vegan and gluten-free bakeries. Exhibit B has to avoid gluten. Exhibit A and A1 are trying to live dairy-free. Los Angeles has really good bakeries that make these alternative breads and pastries. Good for you, LA. Number four, a standby, reading. I'm a little overwhelmed by the news. I don't watch the news on a kind of vacation as I do when I'm home. But also, I'm so overwhelmed by the plenitude of streaming series, reruns, movies, documentaries, etc., etc. And yes, I haven't even started watching Breaking Bad. So many nights, I I succumb to a book. and and nothing on a screen. Number five, science. Take it from me. I hated science class. I tried to get out of science class. i go to the bathroom during science class. But science is why the fires, why the pandemic, the global warming. Ignoring science has put the planet in peril. We need a president who believes in science. And it sort of sickens me to say that because empirically, how do you disbelieve what is provable? Anyway, please vote. Coming up, Amelia Nirenberg. Don't go away. Welcome to the program. This is Lisa Birnbach, Five Things That Make Life Better. My guest today is Amelia Nirenberg. Amelia is a graduate of the first ever New York Times Fellows program, and she continues to write for the New York Times, mostly about food, but also about, I would say, the zeitgeist and anxiety. Welcome, Amelia. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Wouldn't you say, I mean, it's interesting that food and anxiety seem to be the two things, plus politics, that everybody is thinking about. Right now,
0: who would have thought? I know, I know. I mean, my my beat food is always political, and food is always national. But you know, come March fifteenth, I think it was top of everyone's mind, and has sort of stayed that way. Yeah, it's, it's been it's been the six months of food for sure,
1: for sure. Now, I was surprised. I guess, spoiler alert: Amelia and her family, her parents, are very good friends of ours. And of all the things that you could have been assigned having just come back to New York from a year in Senegal. Is that correct? Yeah. Six months. Yeah. Six months in Senegal, mm-hmm. probably not reporting on food and having written about politics and culture in other places. And at Yale, where you went to school suddenly food. And I thought, oh, Amelia is not going to like that, but you uh-huh. turned it into something very different, a platform for culture. I think that's, very flattering yeah I, I had not really written about food before I love
0: to cook and I had written a story about a food blog Renaissance happening in Senegal where uh, African uh, African people in the African diaspora were coming back to try and mine cultural recipes on uh, on vacation but no I never really written about food and when the food editors asked me if I wanted to join the team I was was sort of surprised, but but now I know the difference between bake and broil and braise and base. <laughs> I did not know on the first day of
1: work, so. Oh, that's funny. Well, wh- how did that work? How did the assignments get meted out in the fellowship program?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that most of the New York Times mostly, as far as I can tell, runs on pitches. All reporters are expected to own their beat and come to their editors and say, this is news. This is what we should be writing about. We're we're sort of both researchers and storytellers. Mm -hmm. And since I didn't have a culinary background and I'd never written a recipe before, and I've never worked in a restaurant, the stories that I could pitch about food were about food as a window into climate change, which I do know about, or food as a window into politics or food as a window into identity. And so those were the stories that I pitched. But I've written some recipes since, but not. it's for sure not my forte.
1: Well, uh, you've, you've had two very famous recipes that have okay. gone extremely viral that I know of. One is your recipe for focaccia art, <laughs> yeah. which has become, as you people say, a thing, right? <laughs> I, th- I think it it's become kind of a thing.
0: It's become a thing, yeah. The most supportive corner of Instagram little known secret is Breadstagram, Baker's Instagram.
1: It's called Breadstagram in the
0: biz. Interesting. But all uh-huh. <laughs> know, inside, yeah, inside inside, insider baseball. Everyone I know who's a baker, everyone I know who cares about bread has all of these baker friends across the world who are super supportive and they tell each other there are different hydration percentages and they talk about spelt and it's just it's just this whole internet community. And I followed a couple of the accounts and saw focaccia gardens and it seemed like it was bubbling pun intended, unfortunately. On uh-huh. uh-huh.
1: um,
0: and yeah, now you people people started decorating their focaccia. and it they look like little bouquets. It's really beautiful. It was a really nice kind of craft plus baking project for, for quarantine.
1: Was and probably still is. What is the most amazing focaccia garden you have seen? Could you describe it? I could.
0: I'm, I'm contractually obligated to say my mom's, in part because she's my mom and she will listen to this, and in part uh-huh. because it was actually pretty uh-huh. impressive. When we when we were testing out the recipe, they they were my test subjects. I, I moved back in with my parents, as, as all good millennials did at the start of quarantine. And- my parents did took very different tactics. My dad made what he called a focaccia kandinsky, very expressive, no, no matter uh-huh. reason. reason. Um, <laughs> and my mom <laughs> got like a scalpel and was cutting individual fish out of purple potatoes and slicing up red peppers. And she created an undersea garden, um, with seaweed and anemones and very expressive, very aquatic, but a lot of people do daisies and sunflowers and designs. And I I mean, you know, one of the joys of cooking is that it's very visual. And one of the joys of this form is that it's very Visual. And I think people really let their imaginations run wild.
1: Well, and also it combines one's desire for crafting with one's desire for baking, with one's desire for eating. So that took off. And then didn't you write a recipe for making ice cream in a glass jar, in a mason jar? I did. Yeah. It's the it's truly the easiest thing in the
0: world if you have forearm strength, which I don't. So it's actually pretty difficult, but
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's It's actually for me, it would be impossible. So, so (laughs) I guess it's not so easy. It, no, it's, 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 I mean, uh, the shake weight
0: craze is one of the funniest, like capitalism workout crazes ever. And I, I, I felt very much as though I were in my short lived shake weight, uh, attempt, Um, when I was doing this, but you, you basically, you put a little bit, I think it's like a cup of cream and a pinch of salt and tablespoon of vanilla extract and two tablespoons of sugar. You should check the recipe that I wrote. I don't know if those are the actual accounts, uh,
1: but, um, okay. We'll put it, we'll put it on the website. Sugar, salt, cream. Do you put ice in it? I didn't, I, I wasn't sure. You don't. It's sugar, salt, cream, heavy cream, and vanilla.
0: And, and you freeze it. You will to make sure there's enough room because it will expand and you don't want to blow up the jar in your freezer, which someone did. And I felt pretty bad about that. But you can basically, I mean, that's the base so you'll get a vanilla ice cream. But people grind up berries and nuts and they put jam. A woman sent me an a Instagram today. She did coffee and cardamom, which sounds great. I I tried a lemon and olive oil one, which sort of worked, um, but I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> Um, but it's 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 it, it works. It's it's and it's it's good to do with kids. Um, a lot of people do it with their kids, and they get their kids to shake it for them, and that kills at least
1: fifteen minutes of quarantine day. So it it sounds it sounds perfect for that. It's it's fitness yeah. and it's ice cream all at once. But let's talk let's talk more about the way indigenous cultures have thought of food and. There seems to be a renaissance of people saying these seeds grew here, we're going to cook with these seeds. There was a story you wrote about Appalachian cuisine and how this very poor part of the country does have a food heritage. Does every place have a food heritage? What an interesting question. Um yeah, I th- I think I think every
0: place does have a food heritage because everyone has a heritage. And a food heritage is informed both by cultural forces, you know, what your culture's beliefs about purity and how your culture spends time and division of labor. Food heritage is something that you can look to as how families are structured, how celebrations are held. But but also every place has a food heritage because every culture has geographic roots and the different soils and the different environment and the different seeds that are available give people different ingredients. And I think that there's a movement right now for... People across the world and across ethnic groups to reimagine
1: their own autonomy over their food heritage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a way to be proud of where you come from and who you are. I suppose. Yeah,
0: I think food. I think food is probably the most. I'm a food writer, so I'm biased, but I, I think food is probably the most visceral way that you can make history alive that I can think of. Because if you, I, I, so often when I speak to chefs, especially chefs who are looking to foreground and celebrate and explore their culture and their heritage in their recipes, I, I ask them, you know, how did you become a chef? It's, it's always an interesting question to ask a chef because mostly it's, I was with my grandma, but, but mm-hmm. so many people I speak to are also talking about how, you know, if you, if you follow a recipe you're you're putting inside your mouth and you're tasting and you're smelling and you're chewing the exact same things that the people who are your forebears 200 years ago tasted and and smelled and chewed it's this this intimate tactile way to feel like you came from somewhere
1: and it's a new way for a lot of people i mean it's not something i have actually thought about except maybe when traveling, when you travel and you are immersed in a totally different cuisine, you do think Mm -hmm. about it much more than you do when you're eating at home or being less mindful. I mean, a hamburger is a hamburger is a hamburger in a way, as opposed to (laughs) what a, a Tangine in Morocco or something, and as opposed to a Tangine in New York. But yeah, that's an interesting thing. Do you think that the common eater is that conscious of history or location when they eat hmm I,
0: I think that so it's a really good question I, I think that if we're talking about the common eater, I think that there are multiple it's a it's a hard construction because if you we, I grew up in New York, we both live in New York, so the idea of the common eater is in New York anyone who lives in New York who has with the swipe of a metro card pretty much every cuisine in the world at our fingertips. Right. So it's it's a pretty optional example. I think that you don't think about food as heritage necessarily until you're confronted with foods that are of a different heritage. So a hamburger is an intrinsic part of American heritage. It was, I think, apocryphally invented in New Haven in the 1800s at Louis. And now a hamburger is one of the most global symbols of American cuisine. And what a hamburger represents is our focus on meat and our idea of eating with our hands and kind of an informalness that's inherent to American cuisine and a casualness mm-hmm. that's inherent in our recipes. And so a hamburger carries as much cultural resonance as a tagine but I don't know if we'd think about it as culinary heritage if you're somewhere with hamburgers, if that makes sense. I, I'm thinking. Right. When I was living in Dakar, Senegal, most ref- restaurants in Senegal serve Senegalese food, and there are two pizza places that I knew of in in Senegal. And when I was, and pizza is an Italian American food, but you know, I, th- I think it is probably one of the most American foods, and certainly one of the most New York foods. And the two times that I was most homesick in Senegal, I went and got myself a pizza.
1: Uh-huh. Um,
0: and it it tasted like home, you know? And I think that it's one of the most emotional ways that you can feel as though you have a home is, yes. to, is to have familiar food in your mouth.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. And it, it makes total sense. The urgency, though, there's a there's a feeling of urgency, isn't there, to connect with one's Heritage to it's part of our sort of unspoken drive to be more authentic. I think that's that's a very good way to phrase it. And and I agree. I think
0: that in the past decade, it seems as though there is now a premium on intentionality. Mm. Uh, and the more that you do on purpose and thoughtfully, and the more that you consume on purpose and thoughtfully, the more you are engaging with the zeitgeist of consumption. And I think that. You are right that in the past probably two years, food has intensified in that realm of sort of intentional consumption. Before, you know, there was Nouvelle Cuisine and Michael Pollan, and people were, I think, on the whole, mainstream folks were thinking about food as local and environmental. But one of the things that the, the architecture of Instagram and the rise of TikTok and the proliferation of YouTube has given, as well as Netflix's push into, culinary television, is that mm-hmm. there are more types of food cooked by more people easily available. Um, yes. And I think that there's a we're in a moment right now, in part because of, of screw-ups at the highest levels of food media and in part because of daily missteps at, at lower levels of food media, where who gets to talk about ingredients and who gets to talk about dishes and who should be talking about those ingredients... And dishes as a conversation that's happening, um, and I think that that is informed by the way that home cooks have been using technology for the past three to five years, and I and I
1: think it's only going to intensify. Are you talking about cultural misappropriation in the kitchen, sort of thing? I don't, I don't know if I would call it misappropriation, but but I think that
0: there has been an idea for a very long time, which I ascribed to when I was much younger, and and still I'm learning how how to talk about and how i feel about that if you ate something and you enjoyed it and you knew about food in general you had an understanding of what it was and what it meant and i think that that is true everyone everyone is an eater and everyone's tastes and eating matters and i and i want to know how different foods resonate with different people but mm-hmm. food is as we're talking about a cultural artifact. And just as I would want a scholar of French, I would privilege a scholar of French literature's opinion on Moliere more than someone who knows very little about French and French culture and French literature. I would want to know about a tagine, for example, from a Moroccan chef, because a Moroccan chef, I think in general would have the understanding of the Terroir of the ingredients, of the, mm-hmm. you know, sociological
1: who meaning of the, meaning of, of, of uh, yeah. the
0: ingredients.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: It just feels like a more responsible way for everyone to understand what they're eating.
1: Yeah. I, I, I'm with you there. You know, there are things mm-hmm. that I have questions about. And I think I'm very glad that your generation has sparked these questions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I were to make a tagine or a taco or sushi, I would know, I guess, A, that I like this food and admire it and B, that it wasn't mine, that Mm -hmm. it wasn't as natural to me or it wouldn't be mine to own. I'm just using it in a way as opposed to if I make a brisket, where I feel like I could be the queen of brisket if I wanted. I'm going to call but you that time you make me a brisket. Please do. <laughs> please do. But, but then, you know, there was a white woman who opened a Chinese restaurant in New York this year and was skewered for it. She closed the restaurant. Mm-hmm. The dining hall at Kenyon College, I think it was, or Oberlin, I guess, made, what was it? Something some ethnic food. I remember this, but I don't remember what it was, but I do. I don't remember what it was. I believe it was a a Mexican dish and the students went on strike. I mean, there has to be a kind of tacit permission to explore other cuisines. Maybe it comes with a statement. Maybe it doesn't. A lot of people listening may think that's too politically correct and, and staccato, you know, it, it it just for, prevents you from smoothly entering the kitchen and cooking whatever you like. And it's our right to cook whatever we like. That's in the First Amendment too, in a way. But yet, we don't want to hurt people's feelings. Where do you land in that conversation?
0: It's a good question. I mean, I, I think that if you like like tacos and you want to make tacos for dinner, I don't think anyone's going to jump down your throat and and tell you that you're, you have no right to make tacos. I think that the idea of staccato versus smooth is a really interesting construction to use to talk about this. Because I think that the smoothness of appropriation is in part what folks are pushing against right now. Right.
1: Um, Right. that's That's well
0: put. Yeah. Bon Appetit has been doing like a big overhaul of their top notes, which are the the short paragraphs on top of a recipe that b- before you get the ingredients and the steps that kind mm-hmm. of, say, you know, this is this food, this is pair it with this, this comes from here. And there, I think they're doing kind of an internal over, overhaul or review process. I think that smoothness isn't something that we should necessarily be prioritizing anymore. Gotcha. Um, because I think, I think smoothness is in some ways sort of, Privileges people for whom many other things have been smooth, um, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. requires, you know if, if something is smooth, someone has had to file it down because everything is by nature kind of jagged, jagged, yeah, culture. And so when we're talking about smoothing things out, I think that a lot of chefs whose cuisines have been cooked by white chefs for to, to say it blankly have been the ones who have had to smooth it out, and I think now. It's, it's incumbent upon the white chefs to like understand and deal and, and process and reflect. But but I th- I mean, I, th- I think that also like, you know, I'm a New York Jew, Ashkenazi, and I cook from all around the world and I have a very extensive spice cabinet and I know how to use them. And I fully intend to keep doing that because I love those flavors. and And I think it's totally responsible to do that as long as you like know what you're talking about. I don't, right, I don't
1: know. Well, really I mean, hard, it's you know, it's it's hard now. Processes and activities and exercises that seem to be simple. You go buy a book in a bookstore, and it's the cuisine of Northern Africa, or it's the cuisine of Harlem, or it's the cuisine of uh, Yucatan or Thailand. I mean, it just seems yeah. like. You could do that. One could do that, and also that the chefs from those worlds were encouraging other people, let's say white people who buy those expensive cookbooks, to mm-hmm. to do it, give it a shot. Of course, what's interesting when you talk about smoothing down the jagged edges, some ingredients may be very difficult to find, right? And in you certain have neighborhoods, in certain neighborhoods of um, yeah. in certain quarters, so so you may not really be able to make that drunken fish, or you may not be able to do it as, you know, maybe you have to find a substitute thing for an ingredient, but nevertheless, you don't want to feel bad for, for doing it. And also you want to keep the revenue stream going to those chefs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I th- and I think that that, that's a really good point because I think watching food, Twitter, a lot of home cooks who have really good intentions and want to explore. And, you know, when you cook something from a different country or different culture, it's like the easiest and most fun passport that you can have without a plane ticket. Right. I think that a lot of people are feeling a little confused or sidelined or, or I, I saw one, one home cook describe the feeling of, of, a recipe that she really liked cooking as being sort of condemned as as a betrayal, and I think that everyone has a responsibility to understand themselves as a political agent in a broader world, whatever. But but I think that this is where a lot of the criticism of food media, both you know blogs, newspapers, magazines, and cookbook publishing, is merited because if you if you are a chef, a home cook, and you really want to make a tagine. To go back to the example that we keep using, and you go and you buy what you think is a really authoritative anthropological book on Moroccan food, and the book is you know not intelligently researched or it's sort of half heartedly researched or it it orientalizes or essentializes Moroccan mm-hmm. food, or it's written for like the white lady in Indiana that it knows like the the cookbook publisher knows will buy this. And you think you're making a real tagine and then you feed it to your Moroccan friend and your Moroccan friend can't taste any flavor or or remnants of home in it. You know, a a good faith effort is a good faith effort. And it is up to food media, of which I'm a part, to equip our home cooks with the, frankly, theory and, and context to cook better both better in terms of taste, better in terms of ingredient sources, and better in terms of of cultural respect.
1: Well, that's a great place to close. I think it's a whole new world for us. Mm. Um, and I, I think respect is, is probably what it's about. And I do think that I, I just, I, you know, I've, I've fallen into the trap of, of taking pictures of some of the food I've made because I never was a cook until quarantine, Yeah. but I think I'm going to stop wearing a beret when I make <laughs> French food. And I'm going to stop wearing a sombrero when I make Mexican food and no more, schmatz is on my head for any reason. No, I'm kidding, of course. I, I just think that it's something to keep in mind. I think people who've been cooking in their home for years and years, and they've discovered Adolenghi, or they've discovered sure. um, Marcella Hazan, yeah. you know, go to it. These are great chefs who yeah. who want to help, but just be aware that you are cooking food of another culture. I
0: think it's basically the same premise as music. Like if you love a song, listen to the song,
1: you know, but if you really
0: love a song and you want to understand the song, research the artist, research the movement, you know, listen to other albums that are related to the album that you love. But, you know, the reason that we cook, the reason that we listen to music, the reason that we engage with beauty is so that our lives feel and are better things to live. And so, I think, if you like are cooking a recipe that you love, you probably want to know more about it anyway and And, I don't think that home cooks should feel attacked because I don't think that people really I, I I don't know that many people that place any blame with home cooks. I think it's much more about structural ways that food is talked about, which is changing, which is good. but but, like you like what you're changing. cooking, you should you should cook it. <laughs>
1: Well, if I can eat it, I can cook it. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Well, Amelia, this has been a great conversation and it's something that really your generation is teaching us. And I appreciate it because I wasn't aware of all the many, many ways we have been, I would say, micro oppressors. And yet this is five things that make life better. And you provided me with a fantastic list, and the first one I've never heard of. I don't know what it is, and because of Michael's allergies, I will never be able to cook with it. But what is what is it? Number one, crunchy garlic with chili oil. Oh, it's so good! I got I, the H Mart has opened near my parents'
0: house, so I still feel like I'm living in in a metropolis. Um, uh-huh. It's so it's so yummy. It's not it's 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 spicy in terms of heat, but it doesn't sting. And it's this kind of crunch, it's crunchy garlic stuff. And I put it on everything. I put it on my eggs. I put it in soup. I put it on like bread with sourdough with a little butter. It's just this lovely zingy, textural, yummy thing that
1: Michael, because he's allergic to garlic, cannot go anywhere near. Now, is it, a, so it's something you shake out of a bottle onto, no. it's a, it's like a, a spice bottle that you buy? No, it's like a paste. It's, um, oh. it, it's, it's a little jar. You get like a little
0: spoon and I usually scoop up what, like a quarter sized amount and I put it on two eggs and it makes my eggs more fun. <laughs> it's, I, I am, I am hot sauce, um, appreciative, but not hot sauce inclusive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It makes me feel bad, but this is one of the ways that I have found that I can add like real spice and real heat to my food that doesn't ruin the rest of my day. Um, oh, so. very
1: good to know about
0: yeah. i'm uh, very very I good like to know a little jar that I love
1: to have in my kitchen and we're gonna link um our listeners and readers to some information about that darling little jar. God. Um, on our website at lisabernbach.com. Okay, number two. I'm yeah. very, very, very curious about this. Okay. It is the
0: bra that I'm wearing right now. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's made by negative underwear. And I get emails from them. And, I mean, the last three years have seen uh, a giant uh, renaissance of sort of non-industrial all these companies that are rethinking women's underwear and yeah. negative is one of them that's doing really well. And someone else who was very small breasted told me that she liked negative, but you know, it didn't make a difference to me because, uh, it was not applicable, but, right. but your recommendation means something to me. Well, I, I have, large breasts, uh, which is not something I ever thought I'd say on air,
0: but I do. (laughs) Um, And I have been so envious of the bralette trend because I would love to wear a really comfortable bra that is still pretty and doesn't have an underwire that, you know, stabs me in the sternum when I'm interviewing a mayor, like, which, which has, um, and when I was in Poland, Poland is known for, I was reporting in Poland. Poland is known for their lingerie. I went to all the bra stores in Krakow and Warsaw. This was like my activity when I had, didn't know what to do when I was reporting and bought a very comfortable underwire bras there, but have just been so wired <laughs> with my bra <laughs> so long. Uh-huh. And one of my best friends has very large breasts um, to the point of like back pain, discomfort. And she recommended this to me and I bought one and I it's so nice to feel comfortable and pretty at the same time in my underwear, which is not something that I've ever been able to do. And um, now I can, and I think I'm going to buy
1: like five more. Well, um, yeah. Note to self, yeah. right to negative underwear ASAP. Yeah, no, it's a delight. It's it's really a delight. And it it I think
0: I'm excited for more wireless bras in my future.
1: <laughs> well, especially those of us who are working from home. There's no need to be stabbed when you're at home that in particular. Yeah. 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 And I ju- I do want to say I'm I'm wearing an underwire bra right now and the first month or so of the pandemic and the and the shut-in I did not wear a bra ever, but now I'm trying to normalize Bra wearing again? Yeah, I am.
0: I, I have am that are doing. Are, are, have started putting on makeup every day again, which I oh. will not do. But no. I don't wear makeup in general. But right, same I think here. It really helps.
1: Yeah, whatever you have to that. do to feel good in your morning and in your day, you do because yeah. that's that's the most important. Okay, number three. I'm 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 envious of this one. <laughs>
0: Rapid turnaround COVID testing. I I was inspired by your number five. Every week, Doctor yeah. Fauci, Doctor Fauci, <laughs> yeah, who yeah. I who should be you know number one through five on on my list too. But yes, yeah, I, I m- one of my mother's best friends has. Her family has a house in Vermont, and I was feeling, as I think everyone who's living in a city is feeling, very claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. And my friend, I, I asked um, my friend Sam if he wanted to come to this house with me, and so we got negative coronavirus tests in 36 hours, and now we can hug each other.
1: <laughs> right. How did you? How did you get a 36 hour turnaround in New York? I went to. There was a clinic, I think it's called Cure
0: on hundred and third and Broadway. I can look it up right now, and it was the easiest thing in the world. The nurse sang to me. Let me look it up. Aww. Um as she put the swab in my nose. Yeah, that's that's some swab, isn't it? It's intense. Cure, cure Urgent Care. There are two wow. in Manhattan and they turned it around in 36 hours and the nurse sang to me. So I will be driving to 103rd street every time I need to
1: hug my friends until that's we a vaccine. Th- that's a great tip. Yeah. Because mine took a rapid nine days. I, yeah. and as I've since learned, I could have caught it in those nine days. You could have, you could yeah. have.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Number four. I'd never seen this movie. I watched it last night. I thought it was fantastic. It's called Manto. I've never even heard of it, Amelia. I either um, my friend Ram, who's who's here, is from India, and he was telling us that this was. We were asking him a lot of questions about partition, and he said we should watch this movie. And it's about a famous Urdu writer named Sadat Hasan Manto, and he, he he was very radical, and he was sort of a very big star in India before partition and he was a a film writer and then he was part of the migration of muslims to pakistan Mm -hmm. after partition and it's just it's a beautiful movie it's interspersed with a biographical story of his own life and sort of imaginings of excerpts of his short stories and just as a movie about displacement and culture and identity and a part of the world that i don't know anything about really, it, it was it was very, very, very moving and reminded me of stories and reporting and, and kind of the universal experience of of your home not being yours anymore, um, yes. which happens whenever you immigrate. So I really enjoyed it. And it, I, it's the movie I watched last night. So that's why I'm recommending it now. But it is making me really happy. I've been thinking
1: about it in a way that you only do when you watch a truly good film. Truly, truly. I couldn't agree with you more. And finally, number five, the first half hour of your morning. Yeah. Uh, in the, in the start of the quarantine, which I think
0: everyone did, if I had to be online at nine, I woke up at eight forty five and just, you know, showered and brushed my teeth and, and, and started my day. But before quarantine, before the pandemic, if I had to be at work at nine, I woke up at eight or 7 15 or 7 30 and mm-hmm. had a whole morning to myself. Um, And, you know, I had breakfast and read and whatever. And, and I think that the ease of quarantine at first, it felt as though I'd be saving an extra two hours every day from my putting on clothing and taking off clothing and going to the train and, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever. But right. I hated the feeling of, kind of the the porousness between sleep and work. And so I have started treating my first 40 th- 45 minutes hour of the day as if I were still going to work and I had my you know I have my tea and I read my book and I you know whatever. I'm not putting on an underwire bra or putting on mascara, but right <laughs> you know right. still have like, like the time of being a person before I become a person in front of a computer.
1: And it's been great. It's wonderful. Amelia, it is just a treat talking to you. You are um, such an interesting thinker. Thank you. This has been so fun. It's
0: been so fun to do this with you and talk about this. A lot of what we talked about has been swirling but inarticulated in my mind, and and it's been really helpful
1: to to sharpen that.
0: Thank you for having me on.
1: a, A real pleasure. You've been listening to five things that make life better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest has been Amelia Nirenberg, a writer for the New York Times and a graduate of their first ever fellowship program. Where would you like people to find you, Amelia, if they want to contact you on social media?
0: I'm on Twitter. If you type in Amelia Nierenberg and E N B E R G, um, you'll find me. And uh, my Twitter bio has my email, or you can DM me, or
1: smoke signals, whatever works. Excellent. You can find this podcast wherever you find podcasts, really, (laughs) wherever. And please listen, go to my blog at lisabernbach.com. You'll find links to everything that we discussed today, including crunchy garlic with chili oil. And the last thing I want to say is that this podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My editor is Kevin Watkins. My team is Michael Port, Bressa Arucci, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. And for now, stay cool, stay tart, as my friend Diana <laughs> urged, wear a mask, and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.